0: What's the difference between a dirty old man written by an old man and a dirty old man written by a young woman? Is there actually any difference at all? This is just one of a lot of interesting questions I'll be asking our guest today. I'm Angus Stewart and you're listening to the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast. Our guest is None other than the amazing Chinese to English translator, Nikki Harmon. I had an amazing chat with her. Before we get to that, I'm just going to do the plugs, as always. So, if you'd like to support the show, financially that is, to help me cover hosting costs, there's two places you can do it. There's Patreon, patreon.com slash T R C H F I C. And then for a one off contribution, there's Buy Me A Coffee, buymeacoffee.com. Truchific. T-R-C-H-F-I-C. But uh, all that aside, let's get on with the interview. Let's hear from Nikki. So on the show, uh, we have Nikki Harmon, a Chinese to English translator of very great repute and one of the so-called Gang of Four behind Paper Republic, a website that's popped up more than a few times on the show and in the show notes. So as I understand, Nikki, you've been pressing apples all day. Is that right? Uh Oh,
1: um all afternoon yes it's a very good year for apples we got a small orchard so i now feel i'm impregnated with apples so very happy to talk to you about something completely different from apples
0: (laughs) okay um, no more apple talk No, Um, (laughs) it's a very english thing to be doing though i'll say that yeah so enough of the apples can you tell us a wee bit about yourself and then um, maybe a wee bit about paper republic as well
1: Yes. Uh, Well, I started translating uh, about 20 odd years ago and a bit more than 10 years ago, I got to know Eric Abrahamson, who'd set up Paper Republic, the website. And it was basically at that time a forum for translators to chat to each other. But it very soon became something more important. It's become the, if I can coin a phrase, the go-to place if you want to know anything about new Chinese writers uh, what they're writing and translators and so we've now quite exciting we've just become registered as a a charity in the UK so we hope to do lots more fundraising and lots more projects so our projects are uh, publishing short fiction which is free to view online and providing a uh, a database which is also free to consult for anyone who wants to know more about Chinese fiction in English translation and generally introducing the best works in in translation to general readers in English all over the world.
0: Uh, following up on what you said about the database, so in my dissertation what I seemed to find was that some countries, uh, the examples I found were Ireland and uh, South Korea, they have national institutions that kind of provide their own, create a database for translators. And in the case of China, there isn't one. So paper republics kind of stepped in to fill that role. Is that more or less correct?
1: Yes, I, I, I think that more or less describes it i mean obviously we i think any of us involved in the translation and the literary world uh, of chinese fiction we know that that people in china writers in china the government organizations publishers they all want uh, chinese literature to become better known in foreign languages Absolutely. but we i think we can do something which is a bit special because we're independent And we kind of occupy a midpoint between any Chinese writers who maybe don't speak English, Chinese government organizations who are not by their nature independent, but we are independent, and general readers in the West, in Arabic countries, in all countries all over the world who are translating from Chinese into their languages. They all find the kind of resources that we're producing and the kind of contacts that we can provide them with, extremely useful. I mean, we're non-profit. We do, we mm-hmm. do all because we really want to provide opportunities for readers in other countries to read fiction translated from Chinese.
0: Mm. And a literally a more superficial question. I really like the kind of design and aesthetic Paper Republic website has, nice and minimal. Uh, did it always look so kind of um, cool or did it have more humble beginnings?
1: I think it had pretty humble beginnings. I, I wasn't there right at the beginning. Eric Abrahamson said recently that he taught himself WordPress. And is it the trouble? Well, it's not the trouble. The, the thing, the design has changed now because it's had to change because we've got so much more material on it.
0: Of course, yeah. And
1: that is a challenge for, for Eric for all of us. We've had to learn how to design it to make it uh, really user-friendly. He's really the genius behind it. Yeah, <laughs> I like the current design. I also like, also like to make sure when we put up posts that we add a picture or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, it's a fairly plain design and functional, design.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the wee little art banners that go up with the free short stories are, are really nice. I like those a lot.
1: Dave, Dave Haytham, he's brilliant at doing those. He does a different one for every story.
0: Oh, right. Okay, so it's all the one, the one artist.
1: Uh, I don't know where he gets them from, but I'm very happy with them. They look lovely.
0: I see. That's cool. Um, So as much as I'd love to keep asking you these questions about yourself and Paper Republic, I think we should crack on and talk about the book for today's episode, which is The Chili Bean Paste Clan by Yanga. Although, do stop me if I start calling it The Chili Bean Paste Gang. I have done that. Um, once or twice, in real life and on the podcast, I think.
1: Well, they are, they are quite a gang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you want to say something about what the book's about?
0: My summary of this book would be we're in um, a small town in Sichuan called Ping mm-hmm. and we're following a family, the chilli bean paste clan, but mostly, I don't know if you could call him the patriarch, because um, his mo- it's his mum that's maybe really in charge, but... Mm. One of the one of the pillars of the family is uh, Shenxiang, who's the boss of the um the family's chili bean paste factory, which they've mm-hmm. inherited uh, more or less and he's he's already in a bit of a moral black hole when the story starts, I guess, and he, it's not really even about him climbing out of it, but it's about him dealing with um developments in the family and secrets coming out kind of a universal theme. That would be my incredibly muddled, not very streamlined elevator pitch for the book.
1: I think that's absolutely great. I love the idea of him being in the moral black hole because he really is in a moral black hole. And there are all sorts of secrets that come out. Uh, I mean, we can talk a bit more about his character in in a moment. I think one thing to say is, because I'm going to refer to the characters by their family relationships. It's a good idea. The narrator is... The daughter, and the daughter never appears. So um, we understand she's Mm -hmm. um, in a mental hospital. So she's uh, a teenager. She's had some kind of a mental breakdown. And the way the family reacts to that is part of the story. But also, she is telling the story in hindsight, because when uh, she gets out of the mental hospital, it is understood that she gets the whole story about what's happened uh, from her various relatives. So she's always talking about dad,
0: who is
1: Qiang, yes. mum, who is the put-upon wife, yes. and then her gran, who's the matriarch, and then a dad's elder brother is referred to as uncle. And uh, that's kind of nice. It, it, it also means that um, people who have problems in the translation in remembering characters whose names are written in pinyin, mm-hmm. um, they can remember them as dad, mum, grand, uncle, and, and sis. Of course, there's uh older sister as well.
0: Yeah, I think the, the only point where that got anything close to confusing for me was that uh, grandma in the story she mostly functions as a mum as Shenshang's mum, but obviously she's an old lady, so it's never it never threw me. Um but yeah, it's it's I totally forgot to ask you about it. I think because it's it's pulled off in such a subtle way that um this daughter is totally, I guess, I'm sure there's a correct literary term for this, but she's in the background, um, she's referred to, and you get just enough clues to know what's going on with her, but not enough that it's at all really foregrounded in the story.
1: And uh, readers' reactions to that in the, to the in the English translation, they've been really interesting. Mm. Um, I'll tell you the good reactions first. One One or two people who've written really nice reviews have said, that they they felt that I mean he is a real shit. He's such a dick. <laughs> dad, dad, he is in such a moral hole. Yeah, um, and he's a scumbag and he's a philanderer. But he's also quite loyal to his his elderly mother, Brand. Uh, yeah. So he's not a total joke. But the point is that having his story uh, told by his daughter. Uh, a A number of readers felt that that made him somehow, made it less awful, that actually some of the things he does are are really awful, but somehow having them told through the words of the daughter, "Ah, it's it's kind of nice, it kind of softens the blow. Mm. Uh, On the other hand, another reader uh, who wrote about it said she couldn't she couldn't accept the fact that a teenage daughter was privy to all her father's philandering activity affairs and so on but um so people have had different reactions to the daughter, but as you say it's very subtle she't mm-hmm. really obtrude intrude
0: yeah um, so i I felt because the i'm going to ask you a different question about it, but the The opening master of the English uh, version, obviously the one I read, um, has a wee intro from Yanga and if I remember right she implies or says outright in it that this novel is kind of based on her having left China but reminiscing about her family and her time growing up in small town Sichuan. So I felt when I was reading it the kind of slightly off-screen narrator felt like it was quite infused with the author herself. And the reason I'm mentioning that is um, the other Sichuan so book I've read in my life, uh, translated Chinese Sichuan so book, mm-hmm. is um, "Leave Me Alone" by Murong Sun. Have, have you read that one?
1: Uh, I've read a bit of it. I've got a copy.
0: Yeah, because um, in that one, the narrator is first person, and the narrator is the the shit. He's um, is he married? Yes, he is married. He doesn't have kids, but um he's a very similar kind of scumbag to Shen Chang he he eats a lot he drinks a lot he's in business and he womanizes mm. a lot and you do wonder how much is this well i suppose it's a bit of an unfair thought but you you wonder is this guy an author insert by Murong is he like this is he not but of course in the case of the chili bean paste clan he the, the main character can't be an author insert unless Go has lived this life but that seems really unlikely
1: well she she um ah, there are, it's very hard for me to say exactly what Yengar feels about the kind of environment that she lived in when she was living, yeah, in Sichuan, because it was her experiences as a young woman, but you know she said a few things and she's written a few things. One of the most amusing things she said was that when her father, her own father, her mm-hmm. own uh, read the copy in the Chinese version. He was really upset because he said, everyone's going to think that. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but he was pleased with the story when, when, it, when it finally came out. The other thing that Yen Go has talked about uh, is just what it's like living with some of these badly behaved, mm, morally corrupt men yeah. um, as a young writer. And so Mm. she said things like she used to get wheeled out as the token young female writer at some of these occasions which are described, although Shun dad, in the novel is not a writer. He's a businessman. But some of these overindulgent dinners with lots of drinking and lots of hostesses. Right. um, She used to be wheeled out to those as, as the token young female writer and she felt she just didn't like it she felt acutely embarrassed at times um, sometimes she used to get given a hostess herself to sit beside her mm. So I think she went through some fairly hair-raising experiences and um, she's written a bit about that so yeah so okay. What kind of person is is Dad? I think there are lots of dads around in Sichuan, people like that.
0: Uh-huh. yeah. in, in the last episode, I was asking some questions on a similar theme to Christopher Payne about Guo Sheen in um in Empires of Dust. And I was wondering if this is an archetypal character in um in modern Chinese literature, a middle-aged or older guy who's um kind fallen down the the moral black hole. Um, if it's someone that crops up a lot in, in, in these types of novels?
1: I think it probably does. And if it's not a middle-aged man behaving badly, it's a young man behaving badly. But right. I, that actually wasn't the reason why I liked the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why I think the novel is brilliant is that Dad is shown as a a many-sided character. He does, yeah. hard to, and we've been so nasty about him already, <laughs> it's actually hard to believe He's really very loyal to his overbearing mother. Mm -hmm. He loves his elder sister and respects her. He's moderately nice to his more or less long-term girlfriend who actually screws him over, which in itself is quite funny. Yeah. Um, And so he's a a multi-layered character. He's not like... I think sometimes I find that Chinese fiction can have an awful lot of badly behaved characters in them, usually male Mm. and usually to do with overindulgence in food, sex or whatever. But he's a bit different. And and it's really worth looking at the other sides, the way she presents him somewhat sympathetically. And I think if you get a rounded character like that, it's, it's, it's really good writing.
0: Yeah, I think a, a big difference between him and Guo Sun in Empires of Dust is although he's not very consistent, he's definitely quite capable of feeling guilt.
1: Yes, yeah. And I, I also, one of the bits about the novel that really moved me was after they, apart from Sis, the elder sister, uh, Dad's elder sister, mm. they all behaved pretty badly at various times like uncle, grand, yeah. mum and so on. when you get to the end, there is a kind of um, making peace, and it's all done through Dad, who nearly dies of a heart attack, thinking that he's going to die. And then then there's the last few pages. It's kind of looking forward to the future, where Mm. all of them have to come to terms with physical or emotional limitations, constraints, and reform their lives to a small degree in one way or another. And also, of course, they're not so burdened by the end because all their secrets have come out.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, except possibly for one of Gran's secrets, which I think we have to dig quite deep um, to get at. And I'm not sure that Dad ever understands that, that final secret that Gran has. And I do hope the readers get it. And I think, I'm not going to give things away, but I'm just going to say that when dad is having his heart attack, um, gran is sitting around the corner in the bushes feeling mortified because at her birthday celebrations, some mm, interfering old so-and-so who's connected to her, who's uh, the the cousin of her, um, Shufu, the Mm. master chili bean paste maker. Yes. Therefore gran's chief employee in the factory, um, they're having a quiet chat around the corner because the um, uh, the banner, the birthday banners done by the Shrippu's, uh, this employee's uh, cousin, apparently give away Gran's long hidden, hidden secret. Gran feels they, that the secret has been given away by this extraordinary bit of gobbledygook no one else gets it mm. gran thinks she's being betrayed and so she rushes away thinking her secret's being discovered and i think i'd like readers to read that conversation between gran and the shrivel very carefully and see if they can understand what that secret is too it's actually not that difficult just don't read it too fast
0: uh-huh. that's um, a handy tip for listeners that's the kind of thing I think that would shine more and more on rereads. and i I do think this is a pretty rereadable book,
1: <laughs>
0: quite punchy, not too long, and yeah, um <clears throat> so I'll probably move on to the next thematic question. It's another comparison question, and i'm I'm not expecting yourself or even anyone to really know the answer to this one, but I remember reading somewhere I, I don't remember where maybe some online review that um the Chinese title of this book, Woman Jia, Our Family, is maybe an allusion to another book, an older book, also set in Sichuan, uh, Jia by Ba Jin, or I think in some English versions, he's called Pa Qin. Uh, so Jia just being family. Mm. So can you, can, but bearing in mind that I don't necessarily expect you to know the absolute answer on this, do you, can you confirm or deny that Woman Jia might be an allusion or a successor to Jia?
1: I, I think it must be. Yeah, I think, in fact, I remember Yengo saying that at one point, that um, it was a reference. But also the very interesting man, um, editor and arts curator, Oning, who introduced me to Yengo. that was the first thing he said to me. He asked me to translate a sample chapter for his magazine, Tianan Chutzpah, in English. Hmm. Uh, and he said, uh, Warman Jia, it's a reference. It's a deliberate allusion to Ba Jin's Jia family. I haven't actually read Ba Jin's Jia family, but uh, I do think this is Wormian Jia, our family, the Chili Bean paste clan in English. It's such a brilliant portrayal of of family squabbles and relationships. So, I, actually, I, I kind of feel I ought to go and read Ba Jin's book." Mm-hmm. Uh, and see how, how it's similar, how it's, how it's different. Yeah, and Goa is extremely well-read, so I wouldn't be at all surprised if I find a number of similarities.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I have a copy of um, Ja, a really interesting copy, because um, it's, got, it's got prefaces from previous editions in it, all kind of onion-layer within one another. Um, so it seems like a book, if you were taking a semi-academic interest in it like that, there could be a lot to dig up. But, um, yeah, I've, I've not read it either. So got no light to shed on this question. But thank you for your answer.
1: Mm, um, as I said, Yengo is very well read. There are lots of classical allusions as well. Mm. For instance, in the Terrible Birthday banner, I just couldn't do the classical allusions. I could yeah. do lots of the innuendo. So it actually came out rather ruder in the English, according to Yengo. Than the Chinese, where the innuendo is... mitigated by these slightly attenuated by these extraordinary classical allusions that I simply Mm. I couldn't cope with in the translation
0: right I normally ask these more technical translation questions in the middle um, of of, of the episode or the interview but did you feel tempted at all to footnote this book because I seem to recall there's absolutely no explanatory footnotes in it
1: I didn't really I think I felt that the translation had to had to stand on its own feet. Yeah. Um, I mean, suppose I had gone into great detail about how I translated the swear words and the discussions that Yengo and I had about swear words and so on, or the local dialect. I'm not sure it would have added anything for the reader.) No. Um, the only thing I would have been tempted to write up was uh, an explanation, a clearer explanation of the denouement, which I think people have to read quite carefully to um, see all the things that have been going on. But, of course, I couldn't do that because that's the plot spoiler. And Yengo yeah. writes deliberately uh, in allusions. And you, you have to work hard. So, so I couldn't give away the plot either. No. So no, as far as the language went, I mean you could write a thesis about it, but I don't think that footnotes would really have added much to your experience of reading the translation.
0: Yeah, I definitely think uh, the the language and the translation spoke for itself. Um, I never, I was never left scratching my head, unless, of course, it was a deliberate mystery in the story. <laughs> um, so you mentioned earlier about Yanga being kind of wheeled out at literary events. Um, and I, I've I've seemed to have gleaned from reading up on this novel that she's a kind of a rising star. And this book is kind of a sign of her rising star. So how if I know this is a bit of a big, vague question, again, you, you couldn't really be expected to have the perfect ready made answer. But um, how would you say um the book or the author fits into the landscape of modern Chinese fiction?
1: Ah, uh, right. Yes, I thought that was a very interesting question. To me, it's the way Yenge talks about small-town life mm. while making it, while giving it a kind of universal appeal. I mean, the the I think this is quite rare in Chinese fiction. Uh, we already talked a bit about the fact that it's not just men behaving badly, or or young men behaving badly. Yeah. Um. So it is fairly, really, quite multi-layered. Um. I think that the atmosphere of the small town is really fun and really interesting. There's lots of local colour. Yeah. But yeah. so the uh that. The humour, the, the way the character... I, I think that the depth of, of some of the characters is quite unusual. Mm. Uh, the characters are rounded; we can empathise with them. I feel especially that we, we empathise with, for example, Uncle, even though he's a bit of a wet blanket sometimes, mm-hmm. and he's older, the, the older sister. So yeah. I think the way she portrays the characters, but the way she sets them in, the local, in a local context, I mean, it's wonderful the way these squabbling middle-aged siblings <laughs> squab all the way through. And if anyone has actually, we've all had experience of families where the, the, the elders, the sisters and brothers who are now middle-aged, they just carry on the way they used to carry on when they were six, seven and eight years, mm-hmm and and this is so funny and i just love that uh, so i did i did think this was brilliantly universal <laughs> as well as being set in a a colourful local context
0: absolutely um i have on my dad's side of the family we have a holiday every year where the extended family all kind of well provided no one can't make it um but the extended family all converge in one place for the easter holidays and we have um we have a grandma who's the matriarch and then mm-hmm. but the, the the leadership is kind of maybe a third or fifty percent her, and then the other half, it's all her middle aged children and their um their spouses forming this kind of council of quite similar but mismatched people all negotiating with one another. And yeah. it's not a million miles away from the siblings in the chili bean paste clan at all. Seems yeah. quite universal. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, it's a sign of a good book, isn't it? You can empathize with what they're saying, because even if you've never been to a small town in Sichuan, you certainly know older aunts and uncles who never stop getting at each other the way they always used to.
0: Mm-hmm. Except they've got the burden of responsibility that they wouldn't have had when they were wee kids.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. The secrets still rankle. That's the thing. And the secrets have
0: evolved over the years. Yeah, just they just kind of pickle over time.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so, following up on that last question, do you think the way this book, the translated book, fits into the translated Chinese fiction market is? Does it play a similar role to how it does in its uh, domestic literary landscape, or is it a little bit more special?
1: I think that's quite a hard question to answer. Yeah. Uh, and the reason is not. The reason I say that is not because of the book itself; it's because Chinese fiction, as a whole, is so little known Right. Uh, in English translation that people, I think, often when they pick up a Chinese novel, have a problem putting it in context. I mean, you can pick up a Scandinavian crime novel, you can pick up now a translation of a Latin American um, magical realist novel, and. Yeah. You- of know what you're going to get. Um, right. It's quite a new, for most people, it's quite a new experience to pick up a, a, a Chinese novel because unless they're getting something which is all about the miseries of the Cultural Revolution, they, they, they're constantly being confronted by the fact that China is a complicated place. Oh, yes. So they have to keep an open mind, and I do hope that's what readers will do. Keep an open mind understand that china is a very complicated place uh multiple shades of of gray black and white and Mm. you if you if you if you just think about what you're reading you realize that actually people in china are pretty much like people anywhere just in a slightly different place Uh, i mean one of the things which comes out of the book Uh, I suppose, is the appalling sexism. So it relates a bit to the Me Too movement. And Mm -hmm. that has happened since the book was written. So the book was not written in response to the Me Too movement. Um, And even when I was translating it, Me Too hadn't arrived on the scene.
0: Right. Uh,
1: So that you know it's it's um it's it's interesting it's it's very interesting that it's written by a young woman writer and um, ian go was in her mid-20s when she wrote it which to me is one of the more remarkable achievements of the book
0: yeah, that's my age
1: yeah she's writing about much older people in a way mm-hmm. which is very subtle and nuanced uh, yeah. uh, how readers will read it well that Certainly depends what's inside the reader's head. Uh, I mean, a lot of people expect to see a misery memoir when they pick up a book about China.
0: Yes, definitely.
1: Sexism, political repression, censorship are all the kind of tropes that they expect to um, come up against. But I think if they read this book, they'll find that actually it's so universal and uh, so funny.
0: Yeah, I think it would make a great entry point to um I it's not the genre but to books from China. My my own entry was very easy because I was already living there and I the, the first real translated piece of fiction I read all the way through was it was Liu Cixin's Three-Body Problem. So there wasn't it wasn't too tricky of having to know the context of the literary landscape because it was a genre book and I already knew what to expect from sci-fi, you know, broadly speaking.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, that the, I mean, that's a wonderful thing about genre fiction that you do slightly know what you're going to get. So, yeah. crime, sci-fi, particular Chinese sci-fi, is, <laughs> and has become very popular in translation. So this this is a bit different because this is not a genre book. It's not not at all, No. It's not crime. It's it's just a great novel. So yeah, you have to
0: approach it with an open mind. Mm-hmm. well, speaking about trying to put it in categories or a context um so the english edition is a nice kind of warm red color it's got chili in its name is the illustration on it a chili bean i don't know
1: uh i think various people have looked at that illustration and drawn their own conclusions i didn't do the illustration (laughs) no I i i think it's i think it's great i'm not going to tell you what i think it is I didn't. Okay. Um,
0: you know what? Now that you say that, I'm seeing things I wasn't seeing before.
1: Well, exactly. Yes. It's it's a, one of the nice things about books. You can let your imagination run right. Yes. I didn't really think of the title, The Chili Bean Pace Clan. That was Anna Homewood, who was then working for um, Greyhawk Agency. All uh, right. Okay. Agents for Yen And she thought of the title, The Chili Bean Pace Clan. And I think we just, when I started to translate it, there was no question about it. It was just a great title. So.
0: Mm. For for listeners who are wondering if the name Anna Holmwood rings a bell, she was the translator of, um, why have I forgotten the name? That's terrible. IE's book, The Perfect Crime.
1: A Perfect Crime, yes. Yeah,
0: a Perfect Crime, yeah. So we, we're already fans of her on the show. Um, so where I was going with that question was... Um, it seems like there's a fair bit of spiciness on the cover and and the title and spiciness is kind of goes hand in hand with so chuan or at least what westerners might associate with the word so chuan and it reminded me a little bit um that book i mentioned before leave me alone Mm. pushes itself not super hard but fairly hard as, as a novel of Chengdu. so do you think it's helpful for readers to think of this as a Sichuan book or would you prefer them to or is that just too much of an expectation for people who maybe haven't even heard the word before?
1: Well um, I mean because li- living in London uh, part of the time Sichuan I often go to Sichuan restaurants and mm. other people will read the book who've never been to a Sichuan restaurant. I think if you haven't eaten Sichuan food, which, after all, is a big part of the atmosphere of the book, yeah. because dad, dad loves his food, and he also has this great nostalgia for uh, childhood snacks and local snacks and um, mm-hmm. local food, um, which is very, I think, very common now in, in China. So yeah. I, th- I think that if you've had Sichuan food... Yes, you know exactly what is being described. But even if you haven't, it doesn't really matter. Because what you get from the descriptions of the food is this huge affection and nostalgia for childhood uh, experiences. Mm. One of the things that dad is always lamenting is that the small town has changed from being a small town.
0: It's gone up market, right?
1: uh, It's gone up market. It's become developed. And a lot of the old snack stores don't exist anymore. And he goes up with the wonders of eating this um, uh, chillied rabbit. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was just lovely. And I, I think you, anyone who's traveling in China who talks to Chinese people will find that an affection for, an interest in, in local food, especially food that people have had when they're kids, it's very developed. And yes, love their food um, and there's, it's quite interesting that there's also now a growing interest in well-grown organic foods and a commensurate fear of contaminated cheap food, uh, cheap plastic. Yep. So food is such an important part of Chinese culture and so such an important part of people's feeling of well-being or the opposite. So dad is really, truly happy when he's sitting, eating something that he's had when he was a kid. And, Mm. you know, that's, that's part of when he's at peace with himself, it's because he's eating something that takes him back to his childhood.
0: Yeah, the bit that is burned, if you'll pardon the pun in my memory, is when he's looking with his brother, I think it's with his brother, quite frantically for a... A particular spicy dumpling shop, which yeah. is, yeah. if I remember right, it's pretty down and gritty, dirty place. But that's part of the appeal.
1: Mm.
0: But yeah, um, and again, it's a spicy dumpling, so it's something that like, I remember a few times in Shanghai, fixatedly looking for just that kind of dumpling shop. But it, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't have spicy offerings.
1: Yeah, and that's part of their making peace with each other these two warring brothers mm. who it turns out at the end have fallen out very early on due to our oh, actually misunderstandings a whole series of misunderstandings that part of them making peace with each other is going to have a dumpling meal
0: as you do yeah um so you talked a bit before about really enjoying the, the middle-aged sibling bickering I wonder, do you have a favourite um, argument between these siblings or in-laws that stands out for you?
1: Yes, there, there's um, there's a favourite incident where they're all having a huge row at Gran's party. I think Gran uh, has already rushed out of the room because she reckons she's been rumbled with the uh, birthday banners. She reckons that the birthday banners have given away her long-kept secret. Um, and so... Inside the room, there's Uncle, um, uncle that mm. turns up with his new girlfriend and a huge row erupts. And it is really funny because of who the girlfriend is and the way the other people in, in the room know her through a completely different connection. And what on earth is she doing there? Why is she being brought to this 80th birthday party, Grant's 80th birthday party? I think that is, is really lovely. Um, Mm. and uh, I already talked a bit about Gran's reaction to the terrible birthday banners actually can I slightly digress a bit and tell you how much fun it was translating the birthday banner, I I said that they they were full of classical allusions and Mm. I translated them right at the beginning of my translation when I got to the end and they had to be kind of wheeled out as part of this denouement. I looked at them again, and I thought, I've got classical illusions. I've got to make them fine. There's a reference to Gran's given name. All throughout the novel, she's known as Gran, but she does actually have a given name, uh, what we would call a Christian name. Yeah. Then there's the name of the factory, um, which, again, recurs through the, the whole novel. Then there's got to be the innuendo, the reference to Gran. All right, I'll just give away a little bit of the secret, Gran, (laughs) an affair. Yes. Um, And I thought, how am I going to get this into these four lines? And I thought and thought about it. And Yen and I discussed it because, you know, she was quite keen. She she also realised that these four lines are absolutely crucial. Yes, Um, And she asked another friend of hers in Chengdu, who is uh, Irish, actually, and we had discussions. And then I came back with something completely different. I got everything in except for the classical allusions. And in fact, what I did was um, I'm going to read it to you in a minute. But um, I chose a completely different name for Gran just because I could get a rhyme in. Then I chose a completely different name for the factory because that way I could relate the factory name to Gran's name. Because in the actual Chinese, her name was related to the name of the factory. So I could get that connection in. Right. Then I just let rip with the innuendo. And some people will recognize that there is a classical illusion that in some classical pornographic novels in Chinese, a certain part of the body is referred to in that way. And then I made it rhyme. And then I sat back and I thought, I do hope the end girl likes this. Anyway, I think she, um, she did like it in the end. So, so this is the birthday banner, which okay. sets grand so much. Long life to our distinguished Madam May. As we celebrate her 80th birthday, long life to the Mayflower factory where the fragrant vats embrace the stalk of longevity. So you can sit and think about that for quite some time. But oh, yeah. I had so much fun doing that. And uh, th- th- so it's actually got, although it hasn't faithfully followed the Chinese, it's got all the connections that the Chinese had. It's got the connections in, in the English as well. And that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I love
0: it. Yeah. And it's got some re-readability and some depth for, So you, you, I mean, you could, you could read over it once and enjoy, enjoy just the feel of the words, but for people who are looking for a bit more or for people who are nerdy or obsessed with the book, you've, you've left a little gem for them there.
1: Uh, yeah, then I had to go back right to the beginning of the book and change every occurrence of Gran's name and the factory name so it matched up with the, the names on the birthday banner.
0: What was her name in the original? Do you remember?
1: Oh, I can't remember. Sunflower, no. rather. <laughs> One of the flowers.
0: Fair enough.
1: I looked it up for you, but uh, I'm afraid now, to my mind, she's become May. That's it.
0: Well, for any bilingual listeners, that will be another fun thing for them to do, should they choose.
1: Go and look for the original name.
0: Yeah. Um, as soon as I become bilingual, I'll do that in about a million years. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, jumping back a wee bit to asking you about the uh, siblings' bickering, one thing I remember quite strongly is that probably, I, I didn't do a word count, but for every spoken argument, we get quite a lot of, we're privy to quite a lot of the rants in Shen Chang's dad's heads. And I thought those were some of the funniest things because some of them were so petty. Uh, did you enjoy those or enjoy translating those?
1: Uh very much yeah i'm uh, just looking for when i thought of some oh yeah uh, uh i mean poor shen He and his brother his brother is an is an uh older brother um favored his whole life by by gran yeah because, um because he has this withered hand and gran's worried that With a withered hand, he'll never find a bride. So she keeps trying to protect this lad. Um, But because he's constantly favoured, there's sibling rivalry. Poor El Shun reckons that he's he's always getting put down. He's always getting the blame. And the funniest thing is that when he goes to lose his virginity to the local prostitute, he discovers to his horror that the prostitute knows his brother, very well indeed yes so he didn't even he can't even go to the local prostitute without learning that his brother got there first and there's all sorts of things like that but um yeah he's constantly ranting and and one of the things i had to figure out was whether to put it all in italics whether to (coughs) how to show that this was an internal rant because it's very important that we don't think he's speaking this aloud it is actually what's going on in his head. Mm-hmm. so that, And it is basically Shun Qiang who's doing that. There's really no one else in the novel who has these angry rants, but it's it's, it's Yeah,
0: definitely got at least a chip on his shoulder.
1: <laughs> um, yeah.
0: So last, last question is about the story itself. Uh, two quite subjective questions. Um, we've kind of gone into this first one a wee bit before and there may not actually be an answer, depends what you think people are made of, but um, at his core, what kind of person do you think uh, Shen Chang is?
1: Uh, well that's actually quite a hard question to ask yeah. because Yenger in a way, makes, makes us sympathise with him, makes him, uh, makes him sound I mean, she she does show his nice side, which means that we sometimes can pass over quite how gross he is. And I think it's worth remembering quite what an unpleasant philanderer he is. I mean, how he punished his wife when she had one brief affair where Mm. his entire life has been carry on going... Even after his marriage, marriage, he carried on going to the local prostitutes. This is a small town, so everybody knew that he was going to the local prostitutes. So mm-hmm. that was thing that mum, his wife, had to live with. And um, I think, yeah, I, I think we have to kind of, I had to keep telling myself, look, he really does behave pretty badly because Yengo has drawn him with a with a very light touch. So he's he's pretty bad, but on the other hand, I guess we forgive him because Mum forgives him, because his daughter forgives him, because his brother and his sister forgive him.
0: He does get a lot of kind of passes. Even his wife goes quite <laughs> easy on him.
1: <laughs> yes. But then 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 we see that actually he's the only one who's looked after his really totally horrible mother. Um, so you have to forgive him in a way mm. because of that
0: okay and another question about the family um, which character would you most want to eat some hot pot with
1: oh I think mum yeah you'd have so much gossip <laughs> I, she knows that town inside out and uh, she'd be so much fun to have hot pot with and she's a fighter
0: mm-hmm yeah yeah, she wouldn't cut you any slack if she thought you were wrong about something. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that last wee question about the story aside, I'm going to ask you some translationy-related questions. Um, so, there's a word I learned in my during writing my dissertation: uh, paratext. So, all the stuff in a book that's not the story itself. Um, and I noticed that the the two big paratexts in this one. Um, are Yanga's little author's note at the start and then so before the story and then after the end of the story comes your little translator's note. Uh, I think that's quite a good setup. Um, Would you you agree that's a good way to order an author's and a translator's note?
1: Oh yes Um, that's quite difficult. I think if I thought more about it I might have recommended it the other doing it the other way around. Oh, okay. Just because I think that once you've read the novel, you know, you can appreciate so much more how Yen goes describing how she wrote it. Mm. Um, and I didn't really think of it, but you've always got to think of these things from the point of view of the reader coming yeah. to something quite new and strange. I mean, it doesn't matter because if people don't read the forward until they've finished, so be it. If they decide to read the afterword at the beginning or not at all, again, that's fine. They're just there for the reader to dip into and out to. That's true.
0: Yeah, actually, now I think about it, I don't (coughs) think I really started paying attention to to these things until I got into um, these translated Chinese books because often there's a lot more, or there's some interesting points in either the author or translator's note. That just wouldn't exist in a non-translated book but yeah before i had this niche interest i often did just skip over these things they seem like a waste of time
1: yeah well you know i don't necessarily always read forwards or afterwards Mm. um kind of depends but uh we both enjoyed writing i think it's good that we put them both in
0: yeah i do think it it's um It's nice nice that you're, from what I remember about your translator's note, it's all just technical points about the translation work itself because I've seen at least one translator's note right at the start of the story that tries to like philosophize about the story itself and it felt, I don't know, it felt a little bit beside the point to me. So I think it was nice that it was just kind of practical stuff.
1: I'm very much a hands-on, practical translator. I actually feel quite uncomfortable being asked to interpret the story, so um, you're not very likely to get that from me, anyway. Mm.
0: I mean, I like a bit, a little bit of philosophizing, but I, I think it is a bit, a bit sensitive when it's, um, it's such. I don't know. Sounds a cheesy thing to say, but or a reductive thing to say, but you know, two very different and sometimes supposedly opposed cultures i think it does it is good to be a bit sensitive about these things
1: yeah yeah i what i really like doing uh is writing blogs and Mm. online stuff in literary online literary magazines i love writing about the work that i've done i mean i work in i i work on a, a, a write for asian books blog blog every month and that gives me a chance to write about the kind of translations I've done, and, and I love that. Um, that I find comes quite easily to me, especially if I have just finished a book, I can write about it, how much fun it was to translate.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's good PR for the book and for the publisher and for the author. Everyone's a winner. Indeed, yes. Yeah, so speaking of authors and translators, um, so I think you mentioned before about working with Yanga on the, the Banner, and I, I think in other discussion about this book that you've taken part in online, there was, and I think in the translator's note, if I remember right, there's quite a bit of, you've talked about quite a bit of collaboration with Yanga, the author herself. Um, is is that more or less right?
1: Yes, uh, I translated it. At that time, I didn't know Yanga. And mm. I showed her the complete draft because she'd been in the States. Her English is very good. In fact, she's now actually writing in English Um, and she went through it with a fine tooth comb and it must have driven her absolutely mad. I hadn't quite realised how much of the dialect. Um, I'd missed quite a few. I simply hadn't understood some of the dialect. And in fact, she she said herself, a lot of her friends reading it couldn't understand the dialect. I'm talking about Chinese friends. They hmm. also couldn't understand the dialect. The dialect she uses is very much the dialect of that small town. So even if you came from Chengdu, you couldn't necessarily understand the right. dialect that she writes in. So we had long discussions, hmm. about the dialect, the swear words. Uh, one of the problems is that English does not have a lot of colourful ways of swearing, at least not quite as colourful as, as these Chinese dialect. Mm -hmm. swear words so we had quite a lot of fun dreaming up new and colorful swear words to put in
0: so am am i right in thinking this dialect is part of the sotuanese dialect family tree but it's just far enough off the main branch that it's not universally understandable even by sotuanese people
1: some some words some expressions are very local to that particular town
0: okay it's really interesting so using your um, newly learned uh, dialect, thanks to Yanga, can you teach the listeners a Sichuan or a is Pingla, is it, should I be saying Pingla dialect? Is that right? or?
1: Uh, well, um, yes, if I say it's Pingla dialect, so you probably get some listeners saying that actually it also is um, um, used all over Sichuan. Let's say Sichuan dialect. Yes. Okay. It's ever so rude. How rude do you want me to be?
0: Um, Uh,
1: It's all rude. I can't can't actually choose one. Oh, well, I can tell you one which is relatively innocuous and caused us quite a lot of heartache. Uh, Jiang, dad, that is, Mm. refers to women somewhat derogatively all the way through as Huon Yang. Porn young. And we, and and Yengar said, How have you translated porn young? I can't see it anywhere. And I said, I know it's a derogatory way of referring to a woman. However, I can't use words like slut, slag, bitch, cow. They would all be too strong.
0: Yeah.
1: This word occurs, you know, 150 times all through the novel. So I had to kind of get that dismissive way of referring to women or girls in another way, like that woman or that girl, or sometimes uh, if I think that she might have he, he might have referred to a woman in English as bitch, then I'd use which or silly cow
0: or stupid woman. Right. So, so it wasn't always the same word you translated exactly. it to.
1: I just had to ring the changes. To get the impression through the novel that he's, he's using not very complimentary words to refer to women and girls the
0: mm. whole time. Well, uh, it wouldn't fit at all, but what about wench?
1: Uh, wench, I actually would have been perfect, but just too old fashioned in English. Yep. Oh, it would have been, wench would have been perfect if I'd been writing 300 years ago or translating 300 years
0: ago. Alas.
1: <laughs> Alas. <laughs> But there are some very funny swear words. I mean, mm. uh, I've written a very funny note myself here.
0: Okay. Um,
1: all right. Uh, you can cut this out if you think it's too rude. Okay. So, no, but one way in which dad refers to his brother is uh, my peer. My peer. It's pretty obvious. Piguda, peer. All
0: so, right.
1: It's, uh, a man who sells his ass, so he's an asshole
0: he's uh. d-
1: And I have this footnote to myself. It goes douchebag. A douchebag, I must have got this from somewhere online, is someone who has surpassed the levels of jerk and asshole, however, not yet reached fucker or motherfucker. <laughs> so my Pira became a douchebag. I still don't know quite know what a douchebag is but never mind it sounds great
0: it works if, if i was going to niggle slightly it's a it's a, i think it's one of these slang douchebag i mean not my pr it's started out as a little bit of an americanism and then found its way over like it was a word
1: that oh, was a popular
0: I, I, one when i was in high school
1: yeah absolutely i plundered americanisms you know you got to there just aren't enough swear
0: words in british
1: english yeah at least not in standard british english Mm -hmm. Um, and there were some extraordinary ones there's another which basically means prick, jerk, dickhead twadzer, hammer how on earth does hammer come to mean a a rude way of referring, well anyway
0: uh, I get it's like a bit blunt a bit crude but
1: yeah. hmm. so um, we did do a lot of discussion and and I I felt the sad lack of colourful slang in English so I had to ask my friends, my son, my daughter. I looked at urban slang online, which is actually a lot um, a lot of Americanisms.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you know, let's, let's use the Americanisms if they're cultural enough.
0: Yeah, plenty of them are very good. I guess that would be a good um, conversation point, talking to people who translate from other languages, doing a little compare and contrast. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, you can find some very funny blog posts by translators about translating uh, slang and swearing in different languages, uh, especially the Latin languages, the languages where Catholicism gives you a whole load of different swear <laughs> words.
0: Right. Uh, passionate mediterraneans that's the stereotype, right?
1: Uh, well, it's not that, no, I'm not going to go there because no. actually, I I don't do enough translating or any translating from Spanish or Italian. But uh, according to translators from Latin languages, they have quite a lot of problems finding Mm. uh, some words that will fit in English.
0: Okay, so putting all the cursing behind us, another another little uh, vocab question. I remember maybe it was just because I was looking at a lot of menus, but in my time in china some of the vocab i picked up most quickly was um food maybe again because there's a fairly smallish set of recurring characters you need to learn but um anyway could could you teach us some sichuan food vocab if you have any to hand
1: um not really and i tell you i feel no. embarrassed that i can't really read it i can't really say it in 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 sichuan accent oh of course uh, and, and actually, in all the translating I've done of local food, and heaven knows every novel has local food in it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I have this thing. If I, if I translate it, am I giving the reader the right impression? If I transliterate it in pinyin, how on earth do they know what I'm talking about? Or do I gloss it and call it spicy dumplings, for instance? So food much as well. I love reading and writing about um, uh, Chinese food and consuming it. It's actually really difficult to to Mm. translate.
0: I remember just on on Twitter, uh, I saw uh, it was a tweet from the China Daily or one of the other, um, or one of the big Chinese state news agencies' Twitter accounts. They were announcing that some Chinese dish, I don't remember the one, but a common one had been given a quote-unquote official English name and it was like five or six words and it was all very formal language and I just was just shaking my head at it thinking if you're going to give a dish an official name like you've you've messed it up badly but um, (laughs) it's a bit of a rubbish story because I don't remember what the dish was (laughs) yeah yeah um, I understand the difficulty there. Uh, do you have a favourite Sichuan food? To ask a less academic question.
1: Oh, just about anything. I mean, mm. I love hot pot. We do, my, my husband is doesn't know any Chinese, but he's a really good cook of oh. Sichuan cookery. And in fact, a lot of Chinese friends have visited us and, and had his meals, and they're always completely blown away by them. Anyway, he's, he's made a little table stand for doing hot pot at home. So we do that on the table. Uh, probably pretty dangerous because you really <laughs> not want to tip that boiling oil and broth over on top of someone. But it's so good. Mapodulfo, mm-hmm. um, potmuck, bean curd. Uh, I mean, I totally recommend Fuchsia, any of Fuchsia Dunlop's books with recipes in uh, or any good. Sichuan restaurant that you can find
0: near where you are. Mm, I can say to any listeners who follow the podcast Instagram account, that account follows Future Dunlop's Instagram, and there's lots of saliva-inducing pictures on her Instagram. It's it's actually I shouldn't look at it. It um, it hurts me a bit.
1: <laughs> Makes you sorry that you're not back.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um your your story about having a little stand for hot pot in your kitchen reminded me i knew some chinese people the young young uh chinese people living in shanghai who had found a delivery what was it called ulama the food delivery app they'd found a store that sold through or a deliverer that sold through ulama where the qadi the guy would drive up to your um flat or whatever and he would bring a little portable hot pot stand and all the ingredients and he'd make your hot pot and then i don't know if it was the next i think the next morning the kwadi would come back and collect the stand and the pot and you'd be
1: <laughs> that's a great idea <laughs>
0: yeah genius and it, it it doesn't end up with the pot going in the bin so mm. it's greenish but Right. Uh, um yes. there is a question here about the uh, english religions title but we've discussed that so i'll skip it um okay this is a very trivial question it's like my one my one niggle about the translation when I was reading the book and it's probably just down to my own stupidity. Um so Pingla, the name of the town in the yeah. book, it's rendered in italics. Is that right? Is it in italics or not?
1: Uh, no, but it's all one word.
0: Yes. So it's okay. Ping-la. It's
1: and I know what you're gonna say. It looks yeah, like
0: yeah. Pingle. Pingle looks like somewhere I, in the south of England. I
1: love that. As soon as I saw it, I thought, you yeah, know, pinyin is the way Chinese is romanized is actually so difficult to to enjoy when you're reading. The very fact that the name of the town looks like Pingle, I think is great. <laughs> it's absolutely wonderful. So I love it. So I was um, I was very pleased that i try to shut the door. Uh I, I was very pleased that, that the, the long live Pingle Town
0: yeah fair enough i suppose it's a it's a case of death of the offer comes on a bit strong but if readers read it that way you know what harm is done none at all really yeah um okay that's a cheerful answer to that question um so another thing you touched on earlier and i don't know how much you know and you're i wouldn't i don't think you should be expected to be yanga's representative um at all but i've heard that she's you've mentioned and i've heard that she's planning to do more writing in english do you know anything more about that or the nature of what she's thinking about writing in english
1: um yes yengo is is um she's now resident in the uk so she's very much very capable of representing herself but i've noticed that she's actually getting on really well writing short stories in english and has had uh, short stories published in a couple of anthologies so and I've also read uh, short stories which she had published in the Irish Times when she was living in Dublin so um, she's uh, done quite a lot of work writing in English but uh, I think she's told me that she it doesn't mean she'll never go back to writing in Chinese I mean the great thing is she can write in both languages and she writes rather different things in different languages.
0: Mm. Do you think we're going to see more um, authors like her as kind of the number of people speaking English in China goes up and their, the overall kind of average level goes up as well?
1: Uh, what, writing in English?
0: Or, or more, more Chinese authors who are bilingual or speak English as well as Chinese very, to a high level?
1: I don't know. At the moment, very few authors seem to have fluent English. Uh, And in fact, one of the jobs that a translator has to do often is to kind of mediate between the author and the public. If the publisher in the West doesn't have any Chinese speaker. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see, especially the younger ones whose English really is very good.
0: Yeah, I have I did notice when I was doing my dissertation on sci-fi that so that there are more young authors like Yanga writing in Chinese sci-fi and quite a few of them have very good good or at least some English and it does seem to facilitate a wee bit more exchange than maybe older monolingual authors have.
1: Yes. I I think that's I think that is really nice because that some of my favorite Uh, older authors actually can't write the kind of blogs that I'm writing to Mm. to introduce their work to Western readers because they simply don't know enough about how Western readers receive their work. That's not the case with younger authors who've travelled a lot and are much more in tune with what uh, overseas readers will, uh, um, will find uh, we'll need explaining, or not need explaining. We'll we'll understand over, overseas readers much better.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so that's all the technically translationy questions I've got. Um, phase three is just some questions about yourself. Um, we obviously we we touched on a few of those things at the start and through the course of our chat. So um, let's just try and build on that. Uh, some of the listeners might know already but how did you uh, first kind of connect or become interested um with china in, or in china I've, I've phrased that strangely
1: well i i decided to do my degree in chinese because i had to, uh, a member of my family thought that you know chinese was the up-and-coming language oh so it's in the middle of the cultural revolution and right the actual effect of this was that I spent four very happy years at Leeds University getting to know the north of England, and mm. then at that point went to China. So I only went to China quite a bit after that, and then once I started going to China and I started translating, now I go to China all the time. Um, and I've been a visiting scholar there at times. So my connection with China has grown over the years and I have a lot of Chinese friends. But mm-hmm. it's grown somewhat randomly. I'd say it's not. I didn't follow an academic path.
0: Mm. Well, your your relative who thought China was the up and coming thing certainly had foresight. But I yeah. suppose, given that it's such a big country, it's a sensible a sensible prediction to make.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, not a lot of people were saying that at that time. But
0: anyway, right.
1: I never, I never regretted it. It
0: was mm-hmm. a great choice. And um, another question about those maybe formative years, uh, I asked this question to Christopher Payne as well. Uh, Were there any pieces of Chinese literature that made a big kind of early impact on you?
1: Uh, Well, when we were studying Chinese, we started from scratch. So we hardly really uh, Mm. even touched the edges of Chinese literature. Uh, The first novel that I translated was *K*, written by Hong Ying. So Hong Ying's work I found really a very big eye-opener, and that was really what started me off. This was after i finished my degree, right. dropped my Chinese for a number of years, taken it back up again, relearned it, and then I started reading authors like Hong Ying and other authors. Uh, so I had quite a big period in the middle when I really wasn't reading and doing any
0: Chinese at all. Mm. Uh, what's K about? I've not heard of it.
1: Oh, it's a fictionalized account of Julian Bell, who is Vanessa Bell's son, who went to China and actually did have an affair with the wife of the dean of his university in uh, Wuhan. And uh, it's a fictionalized version of it, Uh, although it draws on Vanessa Bell and Virginia Woolf's letters and some of Julian Bell's letters as well. Julian Bell was then killed during the Spanish Civil War where he went to be an ambulance driver. Uh, Gosh. Well, so it's, um, it was a fun novel to translate and it was my first and I was also very lucky that Huang Ying's then husband, Henry Chow, was my mentor and looked at each chapter and provided some useful guidance.
0: That's um, that's really interesting. I'll have to, I'll have to investigate that myself. Um, so I, another question I also asked Christopher Payne. Um, do you think you've met any of the chili bean paste clan in real life? Not necessarily Chinese people, but anyone you've ever met at all. Have you ever met a, a gran? Or hopefully not, but have you met a dad?
1: The thing is, it's very, it's very hard to say that. Um, I mean, I have a lot of... Uh, Latin American, Chilean in-laws But even there I can't really Relate that Fairly extraordinary and dramatic Family to <laughs> This kind of family In the right. first novel so, And of course when I meet people in China When I meet their, their Parents and their Relatives They're all being very nice I'm not really getting the inside story so maybe I have, but maybe I wouldn't ever have known.
0: Oh, that is that is a good answer. Mm. Um, have you seen a lot or much of Sichuan itself? Because the mm. only bit I've seen is Chengdu, and that was at the end of a long trip, and I really didn't get the most out of it. Didn't even that eat that much spicy food.
1: Oh, I, I love Sichuan. I'd love to go back and travel more there. I've been up Me Shan, I've been to Lershan, where the world's biggest uh, surviving Buddha statue is. Mm. I've been in Chengdu, where I paid a couple of visits to uh, the bar called the White Night by Ye Chilabo uh, Club, which is uh, it's a kind of literary club and bar set up by the poet Jai Yongming,
0: Ooh.
1: who I really like her. I think she's a fantastic woman. Um, so I have been in Chongqing, but I not very much. Chengdu, I love, and I was there this year.
0: Fantastic. Um, now, you mentioned that um, Paper Republic's recently registered as a UK charity. So I guess this question would be a chance to expand on that or any future plans. Do you or any of the other, your colleagues who help out with Paper Republic, uh, have any big things in the works that you'd like to um
1: Well, we're having we're having a fundraising. We're having a big fundraising drive. Mm. Um, So we're we're and we're having a big party in London at the end of November. But um, now we've finally got ourselves registered, got a bank account, got a PayPal account, and so on. We really want to raise money so that we can work with other organisations. And I think that because we're a fairly small organisation run by volunteers. Uh, we'll continue to do what we've done quite successfully in the past, which is to find partners. So the partners can be festivals, other literary magazines, um, any other like minded people with whom we can share readers, share, uh, so that we can open up what we're doing to the even bigger, wider world of, of readers and show them what's good about. Chinese fiction in translation I mean it's great to piggyback on other organisations and they also can do the same for us, I mean collaboration is the name of the game
0: Absolutely, Um, for listeners who'd like to help you raise funds is there a place they can do that just yet or is that still in the works?
1: Oh no they can, they can go to um, the Paper Republic website which is paper-republic.org org
0: mm-hmm.
1: do you get the dot org in because <laughs> yeah. otherwise you may get a stationary company trying to sell you envelopes
0: that's happened to me a few times
1: <laughs> it's not dot com it's dot org and there you will um, you'll find there's a paypal button on the left and even if you don't have a paypal account uh, yourself you can donate using your card or you can write to us and tell us what ideas you have and how you'd like to work with us.
0: Okay, I'll make sure there's a link to that uh, section of the site in the show notes. But whenever, in, in all the recent episodes, when I need a reference to an author, like a little mini bio, I link, the best place to usually go, especially for more niche authors, is Paper Republic. So I've been consistently oh, linking to you guys because you I'm are...
1: so pleased. You you're the
0: number one, definitely.
1: We are the number one. Yeah.
0: Hell yes. Um, So last couple of questions. Um, What are you reading just now? And are there any books, uh, Chinese or otherwise, that you'd like to recommend to listeners to check out?
1: Uh, Right. This is where I get a complete mental blank. Okay. Tell you what I'm planning to read and I've started to read. I think that uh, Chinese women writers really get a very raw deal in translation. I'm not quite sure why that is. There are lots of wonderful women writers. So my plan for this year, and in fact, I'm presenting a paper on women in translation, on Chinese women writers at the Women in Translation Conference in London at the end of October. Mm-hmm. My plan is uh, to uh, read lots more Chinese women writers and try and pitch them to publishers. Uh, I did a really, really interesting questionnaire with uh, about 20 Chinese women writers who incredibly generously gave enough of their time to answer my questions about what it's like being a woman writer in China. Mm. And so that's my, um, my big project for this year. So I'd say, if you're a, a reader and want to read Chinese fiction, um, Look for women writers if you don't find them. Look at Paper Republic if you still don't find them. uh, Contact me. And I think we really need to be promoting and pitching Uh women writers because only a small proportion of writers translated into English from Chinese are actually women.
0: Mm -hmm. I can uh, tag team with you on that one because, again, a thing that popped up in my dissertation about Chinese sci-fi is perhaps through perhaps through who is succeeding in China itself, but I think also helped by the fact that the the authors that Ken Leo has chosen to put in his um, sci-fi anthologies has brought some, uh, some female Chinese sci-fi writers to the fore. Um, so the three big names that spring to my mind are Xiajia, um, so Xiajia, she's got stories in both the, um, both the Ken Liu sci-fi anthologies Invisible Planets and Broken Stars and through Clark's World she's got a collection of short stories coming that's called Dee, de, 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 A Summer Beyond Your Reach
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then there's um, Hao Jing Fang Hao, Hao Jing Fang, yes uh, the f- lady who wrote Folding Beijing yeah. uh, Who, who uh, as far as I'm aware there's a couple of film adaptations of her work one is Folding Beijing itself and there's another one I forget what it's an adaptation of, but we might be seeing some Hao Jing Fang movies on the way. I mean, and this,
1: then... uh, sorry, i just, I, just, I just interrupt for a moment because yeah, the writers that I interviewed, a couple of them, uh, Tang Fei was another one. Yes,
0: that was the third person I was about to say, Tang Fei.
1: These are really on the ball young women writers. And mm. it's fascinating what they said about the kind of opportunities that writing sci-fi has offered them. And they're just fantastic examples of uh, much younger writers than I normally translate, but they, they are the future. And mm-hmm. they, they pointed out, uh, two of them actually pointed out separately in their answers to my questionnaire, that um, Chinese women writers are best known for writing short sci-fi work at the moment.
0: Yes. I'll, yeah. say
1: that. I'll, say, I'll rephrase that, Chinese women sci-fi writers are better known for the short fiction and the writers who are are better known for writing long novels are like uh yod's are men
0: yeah Uh, so i in my little dissertation i made a a very rough two column table trying to divide the uh, authors into two groups and it's obviously very arbitrary in some ways but there was The left column was hard sci-fi, older authors, male authors, long-form novels. And the other column was soft sci-fi, mostly younger, mostly female, short stories. But I guess it might just be that those younger authors are on their way to getting novels published. But yeah, it seems right now that's the status quo.
1: Yes. Yeah. But I mean, short fiction, that's great. If someone asked me how to start translating, I'd always say, Start with short fiction.
0: Mm, of course,
1: and Chinese writers, male and female, do some wonderful short fiction. So, uh, no, I th- I think these y- young Chinese um, women sci-fi writers, you know, they're really going places.
0: Yeah. Um, last thing about that, um, there is a for podcast enthusiasts. There is a very good um, women in Chinese sci-fi. Podcast out there. I think it's part of the New Voices podcast, uh, one of the Sinica, or Sub China podcast network podcasts. It was recorded in the Bookworm in Beijing, and it's Tang Fei, and then I forget who the other two ladies are, but it's um, it's three three Chinese sci-fi writers, I think, talking about sci-fi and being women writers in a uh, in English, although. Tang Fei is, I think Tang Fei is fifty fifty. She speaks a bit of English, and mm. a bit of what she says is relayed through a translator. But that's a really good episode.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. Listen to that; it's great.
0: Mm. Right. So we got on a nice, rich tangent there. Uh, last question, probably this is um, covering ground we've covered before. But is there any other of your own work or platforms you'd like to give a little shout out to before we say bye bye?
1: Uh-huh. Uh. I've translated uh, a couple of novels by Jiao Pinghua. Hmm. I'd like people to go and read those. Happy Dreams and Broken Wings. Uh, he is a very, very interesting writer. He's completely different. You could About as different from Yen Ge as, as you can imagine. Right. So,
0: uh, so they're both, both middle, literary writers, right?
1: Yes, yeah. Actually, they do have something in common in that he writes about his local area, Xi'an, and around the mm. village where he was born. But, I mean, completely different material. Um, and he's a very different kind of person. He's uh, he's a lot older, but uh, he does also write a lot in, in dialect. But that is is very, very interesting stuff. So Happy Dreams, published by Amazon Crossing and... Uh, Broken Wings, published by ACA
0: Publishing. Mm -hmm. Both very interesting uh, publishers from a Chinese to English perspective. Um, If listeners are wondering, or if if some of you guys are thinking, hmm, Xiaoping Wah, that name rings a bell. Uh, He got mentioned a few times by Dylan Levi King when he was on the show. Um, Dylan, I think, has a huge man crush on Xiaoping Wah, or at least idolises him. (laughs)
1: Yes, we we um we co-translated a long Xiao Pinghua novel. Oh yes, uh, together, which will come out uh, next year with Amazon Crossing.
0: There you go. So there's something to watch out for. Um, I think I've questioned you enough. We're we're approaching an hour and a half now. Um, so I'll I'll probably leave you to the rest of your evening now. But thank you so much for being on the show, Nikki. It's been
1: it's a fun. very nice chat. Yes, very very nice. Thank you um, very
0: much yeah thank you too and um you're very welcome back on the show sometime in the future because i'm sure there'll be plenty more things to say
1: okay yes i'll take you up on that
0: yeah okay um until then then toodaloo
1: all right bye
0: well i hope you all enjoyed listening to that as much as i enjoyed recording it that was a really awesome talk with Nikki. One of the top, if not the top uh, Chinese to English literary translators living and working in the world. So, yeah, I'm extremely humbled to have had her on. Uh, before I do the next episode, I will have attended the uh, Leeds Centre for New Chinese Writings Symposium on Genre Fiction. Another thing I'm humbled to be involved with, I've been invited just to attend. So I'm, I'm hoping to do an episode on that maybe just reflecting back on it like I did with the London Book Fair. Maybe I'll manage to get some sound bites or some interviews from it and maybe I'll have managed to get a few, at least one potential guests for the show. I really don't know. We'll just have to see. But uh, in the meantime, just to repeat uh, the plugs from before, um, you can support the show on Patreon. the link will be in the show notes, patreoncom slash Same for buymeacoffee.com slash um, there's an Instagram account you can follow, also truchific, trchfic, I, I just post stuff about upcoming shows ahead of time and it's also a way you can talk to me. If you've got any opinions on the chilli bean paste clan, that's a great place, place Sorry to comment or DM or whatever and the other place you can do that and get some advanced news on shows and show some love is on Twitter, just on my own. Uh, Kind of my professional account, kind of my main account now. Angus likes words. That's a great place too. Um, most important thing is though, anyone you know who likes books, who likes Chinese stuff, tell them about the show. Tell your friends, tell your gang, tell your clan, tell your factory administration, tell your driver, tell your granny, tell your mum. I think I've listed more than enough family members now, so. Until next time, zai jian. Bye bye.